The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Caitlin Shetterly. She is a Maine-based professional journalist and best-selling author. Her work has been featured in the New York Times Magazine, Elle, and Self, on Oprah.com, and on This American Life. She is most recently the author of a book that we are going to be talking about today, titled Modified, GMOs and the Threat to Our Food, Our Land, and Our Future. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. This is such a riveting, well-written, well-researched book, and I really want our listeners to know about it. The first question I have to ask you, though, is how did this book come to be? How did you find this subject? Well, I can tell you I tried very hard not to find this subject. I was a person who got sick with something in around 2007, that late 2007, with something that no one could diagnose. And I spent tons of time and money and energy trying to figure it out, going to every kind of specialist out there. And four years later, eventually, after I'd had my first child in the midst of all this and had continued to get worse, four years later, I met an immunologist who suggested that he thought that my immune system may have gone haywire because of my consumption of GMO corn in particular. And corn is ubiquitous in the American foodscape, and he felt that there was something about GMO corn or GMOs in general, but particularly corn or soy or cotton if we were to eat it, that because it carries its own pesticide and it has some genetic changes that are made to it, which may or may not create some proteins that are expressed in different ways, he felt that it was possible my immune system was reacting to something to do with this package or the, the pesticides that are sprayed on the crops. Mm-hmm. And he had started to see in the early to mid-90s or late mid to late 90s that he thought he was seeing an uptick in allergy and autoimmune disease. And he had started to tie it, at least in his own mind, he thought, to the consumption of GMOs. And he was having a little bit of luck taking people off corn in particular and seeing that their immune systems would calm down. So that's what I did. I got better. And the question was why? And so I started doing a little research. And I was really, there was a novel I wanted to be writing that um, I was about 75 pages in. This is not the direction I wanted to go in. I didn't consider myself an investigative journalist, really, much more just a writer. And I sort of opened this little closet with the intention to kind of write about and get my feelings up about how I was sick. And I looked in, and I just didn't feel like I could close the door. I think probably as a mother, as a citizen of the earth, I peered into that closet, and I saw a lot of things that made me ask a lot of questions. And so the book is really a series of questions. I mean, it's going across the Great Plains and the heartland asking questions 
and then going to Europe and asking questions and going to California and asking questions about how we're growing our food and how the way we're growing our food is affecting the planet and us. Right. And I wondered how you found the places that you traveled to. Why did you go, for example, to a farm in Nebraska? Why did you go to California? How did you end up in those specific places that you visited? I wish I could say I was one of these people who was really organized and thought this through. First of all, I'm a romantic writer. I like to write about the landscape and people and kitchen table problems. And oddly, this became my kitchen table problem. And so for me, I had to go out and see these crops. I had to see where they were being grown. And I had to drive kind of across them and through them. I didn't want to start in Iowa. I wanted to go further west. And part of that's also because I love this country. I love Mm -hmm. America. I love what we stand for, what we could be. I love the environment. I love the wide-open vistas. I love our creatures, both plant and animal. And I love the spirit, uh, the best parts of our spirit. And... I wanted to tap into all of that. And I think there's a part of me that's a little bit of a cowgirl, and so I wanted to connect with that, you know. So I flew to Denver, and I got out of the airport and drove my car across Colorado and then Nebraska and then on through Iowa. And it was really important for me to see these crops being grown because I didn't have a clue what we were talking about when we're talking about growing these crops, and I don't think most of us do, who haven't seen it, who who live on the East Coast. You know, Zach Honeycutt, who is the GMO farmer in the middle of the book, he gives me the title for the first section of the book, which is called Flyover Country, and he said that in an interview with him. And he said, you know, the movers and shakers are pretty much on the coast, and we're in the middle in flyover country, and no one really pays much attention to us. But suddenly everybody's mad at us because of the way we're growing their food. And that was just a really captivating idea to me. And, I, you know, as an American, as a person who's also concerned about what I feed my kids, I wanted to see it, and I wanted to connect with that part of the country, flyover country, the sort of ignored middle. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as you learned from Zach... And I don't want to be a spoiler here, so you can tell me that you don't want to answer one of my questions because we don't want to spoil it. But I felt like Zach stopped in his tracks. He listened, and he learned from your questions, too. Yeah, without spoiling the end of the book, for sure, I can just in a roundabout way say, Zach's no slouch. He's not, this is a guy who, he did his research before I came out there. And he checked me out, and he wasn't just, you know, for us on the East Coast or the West Coast or for those of us who are making noise about this food debate, like I think we we have done some othering of the farmers that grow these crops, and we think that maybe they're just, you know, not paying attention. But I found that to be completely not the case. Zach was paying attention. And he knew everything about me, and he was real cool about it. He didn't tell me that till about halfway through our time on his tractor. But um, he had checked it out, and he was paying attention to 
to what I was saying, what I was asking, why I'd come, and what he felt he could give me and what he felt he could get from me. What was the most important question and answer that you got from Zach, the corn grower? Zach taught me lots of stuff. I mean, it was a gift to be on that tractor with him and to see these farms and to harvest with him, you know, from within that tractor and to see the hawks and to see this bizarre sort of sterile world, Uh oddly, also. Yeah. Um, It was a gift. He... I, he just really touched me and moved me. He's a daddy, and he loves his wife, and he loves his kids, and he cares about the same thing I care about, mm-hmm. and he, he said that to me. And I think the othering of farmers like him who, he said, are they want to know that they're growing things that are safe for their kids too. Mm-hmm. And the question mark in that that he had too, that just really hit to my core One of the things I talk about in the book, and I think, as you know, is I make the connection to the Dust Bowl. And I don't know if anyone ever did that before, but it seems so obvious to me when I got out there and started interviewing people. The Dust Bowl is not that long ago, and it's still really prescient for people out there. Mm -hmm. And so when these companies came and told them, we've got a solution, you're never going to want for anything again. You're not going to plow up your topsoil because you're going to spray the bejesus out of everything. You don't need to lift weeds out. We're going to make your plants drought resistant. We're going to help you with pests. All the sort of the, the Jobian battles that were fought and lost during the Dust Bowl are not going to come your way again. You will never be visited by Job's messenger again. Mm-hmm. And that is not very far away. And that's Zach's grandparents. Right. His, his own dad you know, was a child. So when you think about it in context of that, you realize that these people like Zach, they are trying to turn back the clocks on history, and they are were open and available for these companies to come in with solutions. Mm-hmm. Solutions, by the way, that benefited the companies, not the farmers really, but solutions. Right. And so... That's an important piece, and it's important to remembering who Zach is and and what he's been told and that he's trying to do the right thing, and he's been told he's doing the right thing. Right. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that at the same time that you were writing this book, you were going back and reading some classic pieces of literature. So you were reading The Grapes of Wrath. You were also reading Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And there's a whole list of literature in the back of the book that we as readers can go back and, I think, revisit. I think it's important not to lose our history. And that's another reason why I think this book is so important. It's also a really important book because it helps us connect these important dots between our food, our health, and our environment. And I guess the first piece that you wrote, actually, prior to writing this book, was focused on the health components, and it was called The Bad Seed, The Health Risks of Genetically Modified Corn. It was published in L Magazine, and it went viral, didn't it? It did. It got a lot of attention, Mostly because of the the way I was attacked by the what we found out later 
were some hired henchmen from the by the chemical companies by Monsanto in particular. They made a big mistake when they attacked me. They attacked me as a woman and basically tried to undermine my credibility and my ability to parse science as a woman. And they attacked Elle for being a magazine that couldn't handle sort of real journalism. And that made Elle mad, and so they defended me. The editor-in-chief wrote a letter that defended me and defended my piece. So I think that made the piece get the attention it got was how they had attacked me, the way that they did it. But uh, as far as the literature goes, you know, again, that goes back to, you know, it's an election year, and we need to be thinking about our food. It's probably the most important topic that no one's talking about. Mm -hmm. And our food and our food dominion and who has food and who doesn't and the food insecure people, children in this very country, these are huge topics. And how we're affecting the environment by the way we're growing our food, how we're affecting the climate, how we're soaking the earth and our water and our air with pesticides. We need to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And how we're growing our food contributes to many of the things we're seeing going on, the violence in the world right now. I agree. So for me, I think that the literature part, you know, I wanted to connect with the promise of this country and where we went wrong. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Caitlin Shetterly. She is the author of a terrific and important book. It's riveting titled Modified, GMOs and the Threat to Our Food, Our Land, and Our Future. Well, one of the things that you touched on in The Bad Seed, the article in L, and then again you dive more deeply into it in the book, is what happens when people have research that comes up with question marks. You know, we, uh, I should let our listeners know that dietitians, just like the public, are routinely told that the science is settled, right? Everything's fine. GMOs are tested. Everything's safe. And when individuals come up with some research that shows that, well, wait a second, there could be a problem here, those scientists have their reputations damaged. They are attacked. And that's a problem, isn't it, for research? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that if you think of children, right, I have two, two little boys. Children are naturally inquisitive and innocent, and they've got a lot of questions. And if you tell children they can't ask those questions, right, If if you do that to your children, you make the world pretty small and narrow, and you actually probably damage their psyches in some way. So we have a situation here where we are being told, many people are being told not to ask questions, not to ask questions, not to try to, the scientist's job, the whole point of being a scientist or a journalist or any of these professions that are based on questions, not so much will I be right, but how can I be wrong? I wanted to be proven wrong the whole way through my book, prove to me that this guy who diagnosed me with this was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Prove that to me. 
And I would get, I was a real chameleon. I would be on the phone with somebody who was pro-GMO and they would talk me out of it. And then I'd get on the phone with somebody else and they'd talk me back into thinking GMOs were bad. And it was only in the quiet places at night by myself, waiting for my kids to go to sleep, lying next to them, whatever, that I would start to think about where I was in this. And I think if you tell scientists they can't ask questions, we won't fund you if you ask questions. We're going to take away your funding if you start to ask questions. We're going to intimidate you and threaten you if you ask questions. And that's the same that goes for writers. We're going to shut you up if you start to ask too many questions. Well, gee, that's pretty un-American of us, isn't it? Absolutely. Pretty un-American. That's like everything we go against in this country, I think. And yet here we are. So how did that happen? That was one of the questions of this book. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. How did we get here? And I think we need to be thinking about that in the bigger scale right now for this election, but also in terms of our food and how what we've been told mm-hmm. our food is, that we're feeding our children, who are the most innocent, the most innocent members of our country. Tell me a little bit about your trip to California, because when you were in California, you met with some key people, and I want you to have the freedom to choose who you want to talk about from your trip out west. Oh, well, I mean, you know, it was the California section, the third section of the book is called West of Eden, and it's actually one of my favorite. I mean, I love them all for different reasons, but I love that section of the book, and I loved writing it, and that was actually the hardest section for me to write. So I went out and hung out with two scientists. One was Ignacio Chapella, who's a Mexican-born scientist who's at Berkeley who studied how American GMO corn was contaminating corn in the Mexican highlands of Oaxaca, and despite the fact that Mexico is a signed the Cartagena Protocol, which it uh, made them they weren't going to grow any GMOs. So how did that happen? How did American corn get into the Mexican highlands and and uh, of Oaxaca? And how did their corn that you know they have been growing for you know ten thousand years or whatever? How did that get contaminated? So that was a question for that section. And then I also hung out with a guy named Tyrone Hayes who was studying atrazine, which is a chemical sprayed on corn, and has been studying how it's an endocrine disruptor. And he was doing the work for the company, Syngenta, that makes it, and then they didn't like the the research he was doing. They didn't like the questions he was asking, and they didn't like the answers he was getting. And they started to shut him down and intimidate him, and that was really eye-opening. And both of them were harassed. Ignacio uh, really had to fight for his position at Berkeley and uh, Tyrone, you know, and had to, I think, fight to keep himself sane in the midst of all of it. Mm-hmm. So it was great to tell their story. Now, I can tell you that with those guys, so that section in some ways was the hardest section for me to write because their stories were crazy about how they were intimidated. Exactly. Their stories were crazy and they were scary and they were fantastical seeming, right? So I got home and I sat down to start to write that section and I sort of went, God, I don't know if I can write this. Yeah, I've got to make sure that everything they say is true. So I went on this crazy fact-checking thing myself where I started to check those guys backwards and forwards and talk to everyone and make sure that every and, but, and T in their stories was true. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing was everything checked out 
and I I couldn't find a chink. Mm-hmm. And that was eye-opening for me because I held both of their feet to the fire in order to tell their story because I wasn't going to just take their word for it. Right. The reason why I wanted to go to California with you was because of your mentioning of how much I, like you, love this country and everything it stands for and what happened to them, the attempts to squelch their freedom to ask questions that is anti-American. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's totally anti-American. And, I mean, we're seeing this in lots of other ways in this country right now. But this is not a good... We've seen, uh, historically, we've seen precedents for, for this kind of bullying and squelching of freedom, and it doesn't turn out well. Exactly. All right. Because our interview is just 30 minutes, I'd like us both to get on the plane and get to Belgium. Talk to me about what's going on with Honey. Man, Honey, this is actually one of the more heartbreaking parts of the the book for me. And it's the center of the book, uh, which is symbolic in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. It's the sweet center. So the center of the book, which is called Honey, the other side of the Atlantic, is about honey. Now, I use honey in this section and bees and beekeeping as a way to talk about politics and a way to talk about the politics that surround GMOs, both in Europe and in this country. But I wanted to show people the differences in Europe and the things that are the same. And I think people will be surprised by, because I think everyone here thinks they've got it so much better in Europe. And I found some illuminating ways that maybe not so much, maybe not as much better over there than we think, but... I focused on honey. I fell in with this group of beekeepers and German beekeepers and a guy named Walter who became my tour guide who had lived in this country, spoke perfect English, and he's a real CEO type. He's not your typical farmer. And um, he, he became the person who explained the honey situation. So a lot of beekeepers in Europe and in this country are very concerned about what's happening to bees with colony collapse disorder. And I think I think there are very few people at this point who do not think that if this is tied to the pesticides that are being used in the agricultural fields as well as home gardens and homes and parks and playgrounds and, you know, around schools and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I, it, all we have to do is look at the pictures of millions of bees that were killed during all of this spraying for Zika and I think Tyrone Hayes, one of the scientists in California, his his words resound for me where he said, if it's designed to kill something, of course it's not safe. Right. So we need to think about that. So these guys are concerned about colony collapse disorder, of course, happening to their hives, which is a worldwide problem. But they are also concerned about their honey being contaminated with GMO pollen, which carries its own pesticide, GMO corn does, and soy. Corn is the the one that they're most concerned about, and also being contaminated with pesticides. And this is like a real heartbreak for me because I, too, think of honey as this incredible medicinal food, a food that is served in our holidays, you know, like Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot and Thanksgiving, and it's indispensable in some ways to health and purity and iconic sort of images of innocence in a weird way and Mm -hmm. yet 
honey maybe is not so pure anymore and never can be, and it's a perfect bellwether for through which we can look at the rest of mm-hmm. what's going on to the planet and us. Well, it's a great section in its own right, and I just want to let our listeners know that you start this part with two quotes, and the one I want to read was attributed, and you write perhaps falsely, to Albert Einstein, but it is a very critical statement. It is that if the bee disappears from the surface of the earth, man would have no more than four years to live. What I learned this year was that every single GMO corn seed is coated with neonicotinoids. And I was told that by a fellow dietitian who is employed by Monsanto, so I have every reason to believe him. But when I learned that, I thought, oh, my gosh, right? This is getting into our water, our children, etc." Well, we just have a few minutes, so we have to come to a piece now of our story where I want you to review very quickly the symptoms that you have had, the symptoms that went away, and how you are struggling. I can only imagine that it is a struggle, and yet a treasure in how you've changed the way you eat. So you went in to see Dr. Paris Mossman with your symptoms, and what were those symptoms again? My symptoms were sort of autoimmune in nature, rashes, headaches, constant head cold, exhaustion, pain throughout my body, especially my hands. And when I took out GMO corn and started eating a much more locally-based, completely organic, much more homemade-based diet, they went away. Now, that's one of the guiding questions of the book, though, because obviously other things changed, too. We started sourcing all of our food locally. We started canning. We started, you know, we buy a cow, a part of a cow, and freeze a lot of it. We get, you know, tomato seconds from farmers and make sauce. We make our own jams, pickles, what have you. And we just do as much of our food completely organic and homemade as possible. Like tonight, I'm going to be making one of our favorite meals, which is bean bowls. And I'm, you know, I make rice. The key is to fry the rice and put it in the bottom of a bowl. And then I put beans on top and I make, and and by the way, we source all of our beans locally as well in Maine. We use Maine grown beans. And then I make a homemade salsa and, and I put salad on top and they're just, my kids, this is everybody's favorite dinner. And we just started eating that way every single meal where everything we got was pretty much local or a whole substance that we then created into something else. Mm-hmm. And I got better. And I love eating this way. I love cooking this way. I could never go back. My whole family, the Saturday farmer's market is not just a fun trip to get a muffin and a cup of coffee. This is our lifeline connecting with our farmers. It's our lifeline. It's Hippocrates who said, let food be thy medicine. Absolutely. This is true for us. And I think I'm teaching my kids to connect with the food and the environment around them and to ask tough questions. You know, it is not uncommon for me to look a farmer in the eye and say, what did you use? How does that work? What is that? What did you feed your animal? And it can be intimidating to ask those questions. They don't always like it, honestly. But... My kids have seen me do it, and I think that's a lesson to them. I think that's a really important lesson to leave our listeners with, too. And I cannot recommend this book enough. I want to thank you very much, Caitlin, for being my guest. Oh, I I love it. It's been great. It's been one of the best conversations I've done, so thank you. 
Well, thank you. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank our guest and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to remind our listeners that the book is Modified, GMOs and the Threat to Our Food, Our Land, Our Future. The author is Caitlin Shetterly. Thank you for this important contribution to our good health and our future. Thank you. Thank you.